he tells a story about a little girl. She was five years old. And she tells the, he tells a story about a grandmother. One of the grandmothers came and stayed with them. And then the next day, the other grandmother came to stay with her. And at five in the morning, the little girl comes into the grandmother's bed and says, Grandma, today, I don't want no God talk. I just want to have real life relationship with you. And he goes on to write that it triggered something in him. That, you know, when our soul goes through different things, as Christians, a lot of times we do a lot of God talk. We use a lot of, uh, almost the name of the Lord in vain, saying spiritual things, and yet our heart being disconnected. And he talks about how it reminded him of how the Old Testament talks about the land of the living. And the land of the living is the reality we walk in as in our relationship with God, that God is with us in the nasty now and now. And in Psalms 27:13, the psalmist wrote, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And it is our belief that the Holy Spirit is us with us here today, that whatever situation that we're in, we're going to see God in the land of our living. And the things that we're going through right now, that we're going to see the goodness of God the land of the living definition is life in this natural world. It's our everyday life. Matthew Henry wrote a commentary about the land of the living. What was it, the belief of which kept David from fainting? That he should see the goodness of the Lord, which now seemed at a distance. Those that walk by faith in the goodness of the Lord shall in due time walk in the sight of his goodness. This, he hopes, to see in the land of the living. That is, first, in this world that he should outlive his troubles and not perish under them. It is his comfort, not so much that he sees that he, he shall see the land of the living as that he shall see the goodness of God in it. For that is the comfort of all creature comforts, is the graciousness to the soul. I think all of us have to keep looking back and seeing what God has done for us because we're always in something that we want to see God change. And some of us have been in long-distance long trials and seasons that seem to steal our hope and destroy the goodness that, we, that our soul needs to believe in God. We have to draw on that prophetic sense that, God, that we hear God who still speaks. Remember God's graciousness to your soul, the things that have happened that have been good, the things that God has answered, the blessings that you have right now. Deciding to believe God is with you in everyday life. In Psalms 169, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. When our soul is under constant bombardment and we feel like, God, you're not answering, you're not with me, and your soul just wants to give up, I will see God in the land of my living. I will believe that God is with me right now in my natural life. Desperate moments in the land of the living. In Psalms 142.5, it says that, I cried out to you, O Lord, and I said, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Our desperate moments in our natural life are what cause us to cry out in prayer to God to have a breakthrough in what we're going through. If the Lord wills today, I will give you two messages today. My first message, God restores the soul. What depletes your soul? 
sin, being disconnected from God, trials and tests, tests of faith and time, waiting, how long do I wait? Ever been in the doctor's office and you have an appointment for a certain amount of time and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and it's past your appointment time and you're waiting? Has any of you ever got up and just walked into that back room and said, hey, it's my time, I've waited, and I want my appointment? Probably not. We wait. We wait. We may get angry, and we'll go out of the office and tell our friends, but it's hard to wait. And I'm seeing sometimes God is having us wait, and it's so uncomfortable to wait for God to move. And there's times when we get so angry because God's not moving, but he's asking us to wait. And he has a timing in our weight. And even when we feel like we've given God time, sometimes he stretches us. And he's doing something in our soul as we wait. Sometimes circumstances are overwhelming our emotions. Sometimes grief and loss are overwhelming and our soul becomes very depleted. The impossible situations, the ongoing situations, just the fact that you're here today and you've decided to do God's will, you decide to come to church, Do you know that Satan's kingdom is in opposition to you? Do you know that Satan is very unhappy that you're here today? Do you know he puts all kinds of weight and pressure on your soul and your natural life to discourage you from God? Do you know that people are not in church today? There are some people who have given up because their soul has been in such a trial, they figure out, you know, God, you're not answering, you're not with me, you're not answering your word, you're not answering your prophetic, I'm out of here. And there are people who have given up the hope and the promises because They could not wait. In this current life, their soul got so discouraged that they walked away from God. The soul is needy. It does not see what God will do, even though it can see what God has done. The salvation of the soul. In Psalm 62.1, a calm resolve to wait for the salvation of God. To the chief musician, Shujedath, a psalm of David. And David writes, Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. Obviously we can learn from David's life that he went through some very difficult times and his soul was distressed. He was running for his life. We know the story about Saul trying to kill him at least three times. And he he was out in the wilderness, had to leave his home, his family, everything that was familiar. God was with him. I, I imagine his soul was very discouraged. And it's unlike what you might go through, feeling very discouraged. Where are you, God? But nevertheless, God is with us in trials. God is with us when our soul is down and discouraged. And that's why God gave us the Psalms. That's why God gave us uh, David for us to look at his life and to see that God is good and that God is the one that saves our soul. When David wrote that, I'm sure he hadn't experienced his soul's salvation yet. Isaiah writes about things. Things don't restore our soul. In Isaiah 55, 2 and 3, it says, Why do you spend money for, what, for that which is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you with the sure mercies of David. 
In Isaiah 61.10, Isaiah prophesies, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the righteous garments of salvation, and he has covered me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Have you ever prophesied to your soul? I mean, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Do you know you can prophesy to your soul? You can prophesy to that place in yourself that's discouraged. You can begin to rise up and prophesy. Say, soul, get happy. Get into a little dance because God is going to come through for you. God's robe of righteousness covers us as Elijah's mantle covered him. Even though Elijah had done all that God had asked his soul was still discouraged. And he was underneath a weight that cannot, only, cannot be described by us just by reading the story. You know, there's a thing called encouraging self-talk. And I started talking about God restores our soul last week, and Bonnie had this word that she didn't get to the mic to give. And it's Psalms 42, verse 5, the first part of the verse. And the psalmist gives us help for our soul by asking this question. Why are you cast down? Why are you bowed down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted and disturbed within me? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why am I down? Why am I discouraged? Where's my hope gone? When we ask those kind of questions, it helps us do a diagnostic on our soul's condition. Because our soul is the governor over what we allow our spirit to do and how we allow ourselves to walk in faith or carry out what God's telling us to do. In Psalms 42b, it says, Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Help from his presence. Hope brings a reason that we can come out of discouragement. His presence, God's countenance, is what comes to us and encourages us. In Psalms 43.5, talks about our countenance. And to me, our countenance mirrors our soul. My wife has always taken inventory of my soul by always asking me, what's going on with you? Because she could always read my countenance. She does it like maybe three or four times a day and sometimes more. And it really bugs me when she does it because I'm usually dealing with a, a disturbed soul that I have and I can't change it. And it's frustrating for me to know that people see it. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance. There are three places in the scriptures, Psalms 42.11 and 43.5, that talk about our countenance. But this last verse I just read talks about that he is the help of my countenance. It is God that can change our soul and release us into a greater countenance where people can see the glory of God on us and we can feel that our, our attitude changes and we, our joy can return to us. We know from David's life that God will come through. He comes through. So why can't we believe that for ourselves? I could say that to myself. Why are you not believing that, Bruce? God is involved in the restoration of our soul. It is God. We can try all kinds of self-help and other, all kinds of things, but it is only God who can restore our soul. He's the only one that made our soul, knows how it breaks, knows what it goes to, and he's the one that restores it.
One thing we can do for our soul is we can pray for our souls. Psalm 119, 175. Let my soul live and it shall praise you and let your judgments help me. Psalms 142.4, David's prayer. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. How many times have we all felt like that? You could be in the midst of the most friends, family, loved ones, you name it, and still feel like you're alone. That's the uniqueness of the brokenness that happened when Adam and Eve sinned. The brokenness of our soul is so separated. We think like if we have the perfect marriage, the perfect relationship, the perfect family, the perfect kids, perfect vacation, perfect finance, perfect bank account, it still is not going to meet the deep needs of our soul. And only God can do that. Our, our, our key verse last week was Psalms 23a. The Lord restores our soul. He restores my soul. The Lord satisfies us in hard seasons. In Isaiah 58, 11, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. How do we know our soul needs restoring when we're numb, when we're apathetic, when we're disconnected, when we're emotionally drained, when our soul is in deep pain? We're in a place where we need God to restore our soul. One message down, one to go. God's mantle. Started talking last week about Elijah in 1 Kings, 6, 1 Kings 18 and 19. We know that Elijah was a powerful man of God, one of the most powerful prophets in the Old Testament. We know the miraculous things he did. The, the dead he raised and just uh, bringing that oil in the meal for that widow who took care of him. Getting rid of the prophets of Baal and coming against such strong spiritual opposition. He was running from Jezebel who wanted to kill him for destroying the prophets of Baal. And he's running for his life. Here he was full of God's anointing, full of God's power, but he was so exhausted in his soul, so emotionally drained, he was running for his life. That was his land of the living. That was his frame of reference of where he was at. We talked about Elijah's mantle. And it was a covering, it was a prophetic covering. It represented the office that he had from God to speak to kings and to speak to the nation, to speak to those who were in rebellion and those who were, who were uh, uh, just... In, against God, to encourage the, the Israelites that they were to keep following God even though they were in opposition. He had an authority. He had a Holy Spirit anointing in the Old Testament. His mantle represented uh, a, a greater spiritual thing that was on the inside. It was, an, it was a cloak that he could cover himself with. It was something that people saw him and they recognized his godly authority when they saw the mantle. The mantle also... Um, represented like that, that power of God. It kind of was like Acts 19, uh, 12, where from Paul's hand, handkerchiefs and aprons were sent, and when people touched them, they were healed. So it was, it was a tangible covering, and yet it was a spiritual something that was in and on Elijah. 
And we know as Elijah is running after the angels fed him, he's running to the mountain to meet with God. Again, he is so discouraged and so down. He want, he's praying to God that his life would end. And yet he runs to Horeb, the mountain of God. He runs to the mountain where Moses had met God. And it takes him 40 days to get there. In 1 Kings 19-13, it's interesting that he ran to the mountain and he was under constant distress. It's interesting that his soul was so connected to God, he didn't seem to be able to go to anything else that he was running to the mountain in his distress. He wasn't running away from God. He wasn't just giving up. And I think the days that we live in and the darkness that we face and the light that's increasing for those who believe, the enemy's going to want to get you to give up and run away from God. He's going to whisper to you, God's not going to answer your problem. He's not going to take care of your situation. He wants to motivate you to run. Well, don't run. Run to God. 1 Kings 19, 13. So it was when Elijah heard God that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Long trials of our soul can cause people to want to give up. In 1 Kings 19.14, And Elijah said to the Lord, I have been very zealous for the Lord of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Maybe you're the only one standing for Christ in your family. Maybe people seem to mock your faith, and you feel like there's just a subtle voice saying, why don't you just give in and give up? Obviously, even Elijah was under those same feelings. And he tells God, I'm the only one that still serves you. Elijah receives new orders. Elijah's meeting with the Lord. He was alone with God. The verses of Scripture tell us that there's no change that come over Elijah. It doesn't speak to any refreshing happening. But we hear God give Elijah, his next assignment. <laughs> it just shows that the way God restores us is it defies um, human understanding and being able to figure it out. God appoints new kings. In 1 Kings nineteen fifteen through 18, Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazel as king over Syria, and my daughter Amy loves the story about Jehu. Also, anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. Wow. I don't know about you, when you're burnt out at work, do you get excited when your boss hands you no stack of work? God is just dumping another stack of work on Elijah. Anoint means to smear or anoint. It means anointing or anointing of oil, a spreading or a painting did you know that God's anointing can come upon you fresh when you're distressed, when you're burnt out, when you want to give up? Do you know the Holy Spirit can put a fresh anointing on you? He can put a fresh mantle on you. He can pour a new supernatural grace upon you when you are feeling, this is it, I can't go another step. I cannot believe another moment in you, God. It's that supernatural presence and grace of God that lets us know that Jesus still is alive and he's on us. We see the Old Testament, God's mantle, the anointing to lead, the anointing to impart on those who God selects. And God has given that to us 
those who are in the body of Christ, we're all under the great commission, go, that there are people around us that we would say something to, and it's like putting an anointing on them. Hearing the word of God that will encourage them and strengthen them, that would maybe even lead them, if they're not a Christian, to come and believe in Jesus. There's an authority he's given us, like that mantle that Elijah wore and carried. Authority, a calling to carry out God's will. God commands Elijah to anoint Elisha as his successor. In 1 Kings 19, the first uh, part of verse 16, And Elisha, son of Japheth of Abel of Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. I had to ask this question as I was thinking. Was Elijah being replaced because he wanted to die? Because he was so discouraged? Was he cutting off God using him because his soul was so distressed? Was it just soul burnout? If Elijah had not prayed that, would he still have been used by God even more? It's a question I just asked, just like Jerry Munzer asked those questions that we can't answer in our Bible study. In 1 Kings 19.18, God says to Elijah, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So right there, God is correcting the mentality of Elijah when he came and said, Hey, I'm the only one, God, that's still serving you. And God is saying, Hey, I reserved 7,000 people. They still worship me. They still serve me. So when the enemy is beating you down, saying, you're the only one, you're the only one serving God, don't believe it. There's a, there's a greater silent majority who you're not hearing being negative that are for God than all you hear that are discounting God and running wild and making trouble. Elijah throws his mantle on Elisha. In 1 Kings 19, 19 and 20, So Elijah departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the twelfth. Then Elijah passed by Elisha, and he threw his mantle on him. And Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to Elisha, Go back again, for what have I done to you? It's interesting that the burnt-out prophet is on his way doing what God told him to do. And I think of this, I think about what was it like for Elijah <clears throat> to throw his mantle on Elisha, to pass on that mantle to his successor. Again, was he just so worn out that it, it, was, it was something he would do? I think it's hard for people to let go of something that they've been called to, something that they have done. To pass it on to a younger person, to pass it on to someone else, to pass on all that God has put on you and in you and give it to someone else. And it's that thing about us really pressing into God and developing our spiritual gifts and our calling, knowing who we are, knowing our calling, and going wholeheartedly into it and after it. Because someday, God's going to want you to pass it to someone else. Again, Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples. Jesus is still in the business of passing on a spiritual mantle. Pass the anointing, pass the mantle. Elijah wasn't a famous person. <laughs> Obviously, news had it that Jezebel wanted to take his life and she was after him. What was in it for Elisha? What was he thinking? The commentaries say that the 12 yokes of oxen that he was plowing, 
he was plowing behind one of them, but there was another 11 oxen plowing that field. It says that Elisha was of a rich family. They had land. They had a lot of work to do to produce a lot, which brought them a lot of money. But what was it about Elijah? What happened to his heart when that mantle got thrown in him that he would leave all that he knew to follow a crazy prophet? It's clear that Elisha had a heart for God and a willingness to leave everything to follow. I think about, about, that, about this story. It's so incredible. And Elijah's going off on his way. He's thrown something onto him. And I also wonder, when God told Elijah to go find Elijah and throw his mantle onto him, I wonder, did Elijah know who Elisha was? And obviously he only did what God told him. Go um, anoint Elisha. Go put your mantle on him. So he either known him, knew him so that when he went and knew where he was flying where his house or where his land was, he knew he'd find him to throw out that mantle. But what about Elisha? What was in him? What was God doing in his heart that he was ready to leave everything when God visited him with that commission to take on the anointing? Elisha's heart clearly shows God's heart and how God touches our heart with his anointing with a willingness that comes on us to change the way we do everything and to change our priorities and maybe sometimes our lifestyles to follow the Lord. Choosing the mantle in 1 Kings 19.21. So Elijah turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using their oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. I kind of relate to this because it's been almost 19 years ago where I had my last day at work in July 22nd, 1999, and I gave up my driving and rigging career, my job, my five weeks a year vacation, and obeyed God to come in uh, and, you know, see him start a church here. There was something about offering what he was Doing, you know, burning the the equipment that um, were around the neck of those oxen, and then sacrificing that those oxen, and then he had this party for the people that were there. Then he kissed his parents and he left. Then Elisha rose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Now Elijah didn't automatically walk in that anointing to be Elijah's replacement. He left his notoriety, his fame, his fortunes, his life to come and serve. And it's interesting how when the mantle comes upon us, we may start in lowly places. I remember spending most of my life, probably 20 years of my life, just being a janitor, and I still do a little janitoring. The, the way God moves on our hearts and the way we start serving and following as a servant, just like Jesus was the suffering servant, However God develops the mantles in us, a lot of times it comes through obscurity and through just menial things. But it shows the willingness in Elisha to leave what he had to take a lesser place and let God begin to develop him and to cause that mantle to grow. There were no perks in following Elijah. 
Excuse me, I'm not going to serve you? I have people serving me. Again, it's something no human can understand what goes on in the heart of a person who is following the Lord. The mental definition there is to glory, the glory, a cloak, a garment, a glory mantle, a robe of splendor that was wide, great, and glorious. And we know that he comes on to be a person of a double anointing. In 2 Corinthians 1, 20 and 21, it talks about the anointing. It's the New Testament word for mantle. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Now he, God the Father, who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us in God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The mantle rests upon our heart. It dwells within us. It's a robe of righteousness. It's a blood covering with the blood of Jesus that makes us righteous and holy and keeps us in the grace of God. We've been made kings and priests, and we are to use our anointing to touch a dying world. The English lexicon defines the anointing as to assign, to anoint, to assign a person to a task with an implication of supernatural sanctions, blessings and endowment, to anoint, to assign, to appoint, an assignment, an appointment. Do you know when you came to Christ, you were anointed? In Strong's, it's the idea of contact, to smear or rub with oil, to consecrate, to set to an office. The Holy Spirit assigns spiritual gifts, to handle, to furnish what is needed, to give an oracle or graze, touching slightly, to light upon, to employ, to entreat one, to use one. A supernatural impartation of the Holy Spirit by the laying of the hands. The mantle can come. The mantle can increase. Anointing, the mantle operates in weakness. Shall I use that scripture today? He explains our weakness. Cast down but unconquered. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. This treasure in weak vessels, earthen vessels. The weakness is not necessarily sin, but just the weakness of our own soul, our inability, our insecurity, our self-doubt. I tell you, that's, that's what I've struggled with. Depression has been the weakness in my flesh, the weakness in my soul. But God uses weak people like me, like Elijah, like Elijah, like others, like all of us. In our weakness, God wants to come through with a supernatural mantle, a supernatural anointing, a supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I know there's nothing like speaking or using our gift when we feel at the top of our game, when we feel, oh, so good in the spiritual, but when you're weak and you have to just do what God wants you to do and you don't want to do it. That's God's power coming through. That shows it's not just your will, but it's allowing the Holy Spirit to use you because you're, you're, you're a child of God. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're anointing. You have a place. You have value. You have worth. And God wants to honor, be honored by using you. The promise of the anointing. 
It was promised in Acts 1.8 by Jesus. Right before he left, he said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. A promise of an anointing, a mantle to walk in God's authority. To receive the Holy Spirit at new birth is a first step. As we grow and mature, you know, there's can be another experience, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The disciples were taught to be filled with the Spirit. Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. They were told to go wait for the anointing at Pentecost. Throughout our life, we seek for continual refreshment and renewal and fresh anointings to come upon us because we have this treasure in earthen vessels, because we have a soul that's connected here in the land of the living. Our key verse for today is 1 John 2.20. And John reminded us, you have an anointing from the Holy One. The Old Testament anointing on certain ones like Elijah and Elisha was limited. In the New Testament, it's anyone who is in Christ. The door is open. The ability and opportunity to receive the Holy Spirit is for all of us. In 1 John 2.27, the anointing which God, the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you. That's an incredible promise that Him abides in you.